Well, it's good to see everybody today. Glad you're here. Well, I'm glad you're here, all right? That actually was a question. I am glad you're here, and I'm glad that you're here. Michael, Melissa, thank you for hosting. How fun was that, huh? I thought they were going to break out in a love fest for a second. It's like, whoa, hope you have a license to do that. How many of you remember the store Blockbuster? Remember that store? Yeah, in 2004, they had 9,100 stores and employed 84,000 people. In year 2000, four years before that, um, or four, yeah, four years before that, a, a little-known company made an offer to Blockbuster to buy their entire company for $50 million. They turned them down. Ten years later, Blockbuster files for bankruptcy. Well, that company that tried to buy them now has 216 million subscribers and an annual revenue of $26 billion. The company... Netflix. Blockbuster refused to change. Kodak used to be the world's largest producer of film. But while they were doing that, they invested billions of dollars into developing technology for taking pictures with things like mobile phones and other mobile devices. However, it held back from developing digital cameras because they didn't want to eradicate their film business. Well, Kodak filed for bankruptcy in 2012. Kodak refused to change. In fact, of the 500, Fortune 500 companies in 1955, 440 of them have either filed for bankruptcy, merged, or fallen out of the top 500 companies. You'll recognize these names. Xerox, IBM, Pan Am, Radio Shack, JCPenney, BlackBerry, Polaroid, Macy's, Compact, Atari, Hummer, and on they go. If you're taking talk notes, here's the first fill-in. Failing to change often leads to failure. Organizations and individuals can decide what they're going to become. And here's the tension. I'm sure that in the conference room and boardrooms of those companies, there were conversations. There were people that said, hey, we need to innovate. We need to go in this direction and not keep doing the same old things. And those voices went by the wayside, as did most of those companies. There are wise voices to listen to, and there are unwise voices. And sometimes it's hard to know which one to listen to. When we were first married, we got some unwise financial advice. Invest in what was a product called limited partnerships. We lost thousands of dollars. We had a wise voice that came along and said, as soon as you can, buy a house. So we did. Here's a picture of our very first house. Fort Collins, $58,000 for that house. Our mortgage interest rate, 11 and a quarter percent. Both voices led to significant thousands of dollars worth of change. One positive, one negative. I mean, there was a time when I was really struggling in my relationship with one of my, teen, my nearly 20-year-old son and went to a counselor, and she gave me some very wise, I'm glad I listened to this counsel. She said, Dennis, you need to stop treating your son like a son and start treating him like a man. 
And there was a switch that happened, and gradually my relationship changed from the parental authority model of parenting to the parental influence model of parenting. And it was a very wise voice, and I'm glad I listened to it. I welcomed my counselor's wise voice, but not all wise voices are welcome, are they? I mean, we know that sometimes listening to a wise voice is going to cost us something in a relationship. I mean, sometimes we get defensive with certain voices because deep down we know we're wrong and we just don't want to say, I'm wrong. Sometimes we don't want to listen to a voice of change because we don't want to do the hard work, the ongoing hard work of rethinking what we've been taught. And sometimes, like Blockbuster, it's just easier to stick with the status quo. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, it may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird. It would be jolly sight harder for a bird to learn to fly while remaining an egg. We're like eggs at present, and you cannot go indefinitely being just an ordinary, decent egg. We must be hatched or go bad. And if there was ever a voice of change, it was the voice of Jesus. Sometimes Jesus, what Jesus had to say was welcomed. I mean, initially, the crowds, the, their initial response was, we've never heard teaching like this. Jesus speaks like, like he knows life and he knows what he's talking about. And we also know that sometimes Jesus' voice, his words upset people, especially those who didn't want to change. Our anchor verse for this series is Mark 8, 29, where Jesus asked his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And there's probably no question more important than this one for any human being. It's the quintessential question. But right before in that scene where Jesus asked his disciples who they think, he says in Mark 28, 29, but, or, or 28, he said, and they told him that Jesus asked them, who do other people say that I am? And this is what they said. They told him, well, other people are saying that you're John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. In Matthew's version of this story, Matthew adds Jeremiah to the prophet list. And so the historical Jesus that we're talking about in this series was often put in the category of leaders called prophets. We don't use that term much anymore. But simply put, a prophet is a person chosen by God to speak for God. And in the Bible, there are 59 named prophets, 11 of whom are women, they're referenced over 300 times in the Old Testament, 100 times in the New Testament. Not all prophets spoke for God, though. There was a category called false prophets. And if you look at the table of contents in any Bible, uh, you'll see uh, 12, 16, 16 named prophets in two categories. Major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then 12 minor prophets with names like Jonah, Obadiah, Habakkuk, Malachi, Major, those major minor designations have nothing to do with their importance or their significance. It had to do with the length of the book. So if it was long, it was a major prophet. It was a short, it was a minor prophet. Think novel, novella. And as we look at the sweep of biblical history, the lifespan of these prophets was actually relatively short, mostly from about 760 B.C., to about 460 B.C. or so, for about 300 years. And they're clustered. They're always clustered around these impending national crises that are looming. 
And I, I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I was raised, it seems like the term prophet was used about someone who could sort of predict the future, including the end of the world as we know it, or predict the coming of the Messiah. That's what prophets did. The one who would bring justice into, or onto the earth at the end of time. Back when I was a kid, I remember being inundated, maybe you remember this too if you grew up in a church, with the church's preoccupation with the end times, right? Complete with all kinds of fancy charts and Bible verses that were supposed to help us actually predict, maybe even put it on a calendar, when the world as we know it would end. There were movies like The Rapture, books like The Late Great Planet Earth, which were all designed to scare you out of hell. And they did scare the hell out of you. <laughs> and they're based on scare tactics that had zero to do with the understanding Jesus and experiencing Christ. I remember one time I attended this talk, um, and it was the speaker's last name was, it was a past, local pastor named, named Grimm was his last name. So you can imagine the end times on the poster by Pastor Grimm. And much of what the prophets had to say, honestly, if you read them in the Old Testament, was grim. But only about 1% of what the biblical prophets spoke about predict, had anything to do with predicting the future. And only 2% had anything to do with the coming Messiah. And these prophets appeared during a time in Israel's history that were defining moments for the country. Their message was essentially this, change, change, or stay on the same trajectory and reap, reap the consequences of your poor decisions. But the door right now is wide open for transformation. But sadly, mostly, Israel didn't listen. And in 722 BC, part of the country was conquered, exiled, and in about 586 BC, the rest of the country fell. And year after year leading up to those times, these prophets tried to be a voice of change, like Blockbuster, like many, but they went unheard. At the end of the Old Testament, it was thought to be a time when God ceased to communicate with Israel. 400 years go by. Then John the Baptist comes on the scene, and people start getting excited because he looked and talked like some of these Old Testament prophets. Then Jesus arrives, teaching and doing some miracles that gave people the idea that the great reversal at the end of time was beginning, this great transformation that God was initiating was beginning to happen. Evil would be put down. Injustice would be turned into justice. Sickness would be healed. Prosperity would overcome poverty. Rome would be conquered. It would be a great time of the Spirit. Then peace will guide the planet and love will steer the stars. It is the dawning of the age of Israel in this case. And it's no wonder crowds flocked to Jesus. I mean, he had all the signs. The hungry were fed. The lame walked. Evil demons were cast out. The blind could see. Even a few dead people were raised from the dead. But it's also no wonder people were disillusioned and defected from the movement when Jesus washed feet, took the role of a servant, created a culture of inclusion, chose compassion over moral categories, Jesus wasn't interested in Roman or Israeli war machines. He eschewed violence and loved to go to parties that no righteous rabbi would ever attend. 
Instead of hating and killing Roman enemies, Jesus chose to forgive and ended up on a cross, exposing the injustice of both the political systems of the day, Rome and religion, and demonstrating the very nature of love. The purpose of a prophet wasn't to reveal the truth, but to change it. And if Jesus was a prophetic voice of change, what did he come to change? And when I first wrestled with this question when I was preparing, my answer that popped into my head was, just about everything. That's what Jesus came to change. And Jesus cared deeply for people. You know, you see it numerous times when, when he weeps for a friend like Lazarus or when he's coming into Jerusalem before his crucifixion and he's overlooking the city and he just weeps, he just weeps, breaks down because he cares so much. He knew this was a defining moment for their country. He knew this was a chance to, for transformation. And in the back of his mind, he had this sense that they're not going to listen. They're not going to get it. He knew that the trajectory of their lives was leading to individual, societal, and national disaster which is in fact what happened because Jerusalem was laid siege by Rome and in 70 AD it fell and life as they knew it in Jerusalem ceased to exist. But Jesus says it doesn't have to be this way. I'm a voice of change. This is a carpe diem, diem, diem moment. This is a seize the day opportunity. They could choose to listen to the voice of Jesus to live the life that Jesus modeled and transform their future. So what did Jesus come to change? I narrowed it down to four. I decided everything would be too long to talk about. <laughs> and here's a little secret. We're still wrestling with the same issues today. Number one, change. Jesus came to change their experience and expression of the love of God. One day, a teacher of the law asked Jesus to summarize the entire Old Testament law. Of all the commandments, he says, which one is the most important? And in Mark 12, Jesus responds, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. The teacher asked for one commandment. Jesus gives him two and says it's one. His point, you cannot separate loving God from loving people. And the teacher gets it, that this is what Jesus is implying. Here's his response. The, the teacher or the leader of the law says, well said, teacher. The man replied, you're right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, to love your neighbor as yourself, that's the second one, is more important, here he goes, than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far, you're not far from the kingdom of God. The man almost gets it. He realizes that the demonstration of true love for God isn't how many times he goes to the temple, goes to church, isn't how much he drops in the offering basket. It's not how much he reads his Bible, although that's always good. It's not how devoted he is to the study, his Bible study group. 
I think the reason Jesus says the teacher's not far from the kingdom of God is that just because the teacher sees the truth doesn't necessarily mean he's loving his neighbors like he's loving God. You've got to live it. You've got to live it. So in this case, by combining love for God and love for neighbor, Jesus seems to be saying this. If we love God, we will love those whom God loves. It's impossible to love God and not love our neighbors because we become most like what we most love. We are what we love. And Jesus pushes this even further in Matthew 5. He says, you love your friends? Big deal. You say hello to the people that go to your church? Big deal. You love the people that love you? Well, that's good. But let me tell you how far the love of God stretches. It looks like loving your enemy and doing the kind, kind things for people who offend and hate you. It looks like praying for, not hating, those whom you can't stand. So here's the change, the voice of change of Jesus, to see that our love for God is not primarily expressed in a church service. Sorry about that, all of you who are at our church service today. But rather in the service to our neighbors. We understand that when we express love for a neighbor, wherever it's a stranger neighbor or a neighbor neighbor we know, do we experience the love of God in that? That is the love of God. That loving our neighbor is loving God. And loving God is loving our neighbor. Jesus says, these two are intertwined. You cannot separate them. Which leads to the second change. Number two, Jesus came to bring all people together, not leave them in their separatedness. I created that word in case you don't find it in the dictionary. Separatedness. I like it. This was one of the main reasons the religious leaders of Jesus' day viewed him as such a threat, that they demanded that Jesus' crucifixion from Rome. I mean, check out Ryan's sermon from last week. If you missed it, go back and listen to it. He lays the groundwork for all of this that I'm talking about here. <clears throat> Jesus violated moral and religious rules. He touched lepers. He protected a woman caught in adultery and challenged the purity culture of his day, the man who turned her in by saying this, if you consider yourself poor, uh, pure, you might just become a killer. He heals the daughter of a Gentile mom. He regularly parties with the moral, social, and religious scallywags. He makes an entire excluded race of people, those dirty, half-Gentile Samaritans, he takes them and makes them heroes of many of his stories. And here's the point. In any kind of us-them, insider-outsider comparison comes the temptation of supremacy thinking. It's competitive instead of collaborative thinking. In his book titled, Do I Stay Christian? Brian McLaren writes, supremacy was baked into our doctrines, our practices, our hymns, our rituals. But through Jesus, God joins in solidarity, not just with the religious humanity, not just in enlightened humanity, not just with pure, innocent, idealized humanity, but with the fleshly, messy, mucky humanity of unclean slobs like us. 
That means solidarity with victims, yes. But it also means a painful solidarity with villains. For they're humans too. And the line between victim and villain doesn't run neatly between humans, but jaggedly within each of us. He continues to write, if I keep separating from whatever strikes me as flawed, whatever embarrasses me, I will eventually find myself hating humanity as a failed project. As theologian Francis Schaeffer once said, if we demand perfection or nothing, we will have nothing. So here's the change I think Jesus came to put into play. Become collaborators instead of competitors. See, those who disagree with us as opponents, but not enemies, as neighbors, not others. Instead of pulling away from those we often vilify, avoid, or reject, we smile. We talk. We try to collaborate. And when we do disagree, we disagree boldly, but graciously. Avoid name-calling, categorizing, not burning bridges. After one of Ryan's sermons a number of years ago about inclusion, I remember thinking to myself, if we truly are explaining Jesus and experiencing Christ today at Crossroads in our church, we will be intentionally inclusive to the extent that other religious groups will say of us, you let them belong, you welcome them. Because if we're not, we're probably not experiencing Christ the way we could these days because that was Jesus' experience in his day. And here's the other side of that, though. If we vilify those who glorify exclusion, then we're not loving the very neighbors that God loves either. That's the second change. Here's number three. This is a biggie. The way they interpreted their Bible. The Bible is a voice of significant change and influence. It has been ever since it was written and codified. But interpreting and understanding this amazing book continues to be a challenge. Brian Zond writes in his foreword to Bradley Jerzak's book, A More Christ-Like God, A More Beautiful Gospel. This is what he writes. Even if we restrict our inquiry into the nature of God to the Bible, we are likely to find just the kind of God we want to find. If we want a God of peace, He's there. If we want a God of war, He's there. He's in the Bible. If we want a compassionate God, He's there. If we want a vindictive God, He's there. If we want an egalitarian God, He's there. If we want an ethnocentric God, He's there. If we want a God demanding blood sacrifice, He's there. If we want a God abolishing blood sacrifice, He's there. Sometimes the Bible is like a Rorschach test. It reveals more about the reader than the eternal I am. But here's, here's some good news, I think, for us. From the earliest days of the movement that was grounded in the memory of the historical Jesus and would eventually become known as Christianity, those who followed him believed that Jesus' nature is exactly like God. And God's nature is exactly like Jesus. Jesus referred to this. John 14, 9, Jesus said, The one who's seen me has seen the Father. Colossians 1, 15 and 19, Paul writes, The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. For God was pleased to have, hear this, 
all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus. Hebrews 1.3, the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, and here it is, and the exact representation of his being. And that's why Jesus has the authority, when we read about the historical Jesus and what he did with the Bible, he has the authority to say to people, let me tell you what it really means. I'm going to help you understand this book because I know the Father. Six times in Matthew 5, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said about a certain topic. In other words, Jesus says, this is your current interpretation and application of this text, of this passage of the Bible. And then six times Jesus says, but I say to you, let me tell you what it really means and how to apply it to your life today. And it was always different than the current understanding. And interpreting this book, this Bible, is not as simple as some would claim it to be. I mean, many of us grew up in traditions that they, they like to use the phrase, or we like to use the phrase, the biblical view is. Remember? The biblical view. Of course, it's my biblical view, right? And that's why there are currently 41,000 denominations and Christian organizations on the planet. And that doesn't count all the independent churches and organizations. And while there is a lot of agreement about biblical interpretation, at some point, each of those 41,000 groups said, well, that's your interpretation, but it's not mine, and we're going to go start another denomination based on this one. And I've come to kind of the point in my life today that there are two ways to try to understand the Bible in light of the life of Jesus. You can start with the book. You start with the Bible and try to make Jesus fit into everything the book claims about God. Or you can start with the historical Jesus, the books about Jesus, the life of Jesus, and interpret the rest of the Bible through the lens of Him. And I guarantee you that if you take the second way, which seems wiser to me, it's going to lead you to some very different conclusions about the nature of God. And the reason why that seems, way seems wiser to me is because that's just what Jesus did. If, there, if Jesus is God, and Jesus knows God better than any other human being ever, and Jesus says, here's how you understand and interpret this book, then for me, I think i got to listen to that. I think I have to listen to that. So here's the change. We need to interpret this book, the Bible, through the life and lens of Jesus and not the other way around. This is going to rock your boat. Especially if you grew up in a church with lots of doctrines and creeds and statements of belief. It has mine. But it can also free us from having to try to fit certain ideas about the nature of God into a view of God that Jesus would say, I know that's what you've heard said, but I say to you. So Jesus might say things like this. You've heard it said that the identifying marks of a Jesus follower is what they refuse to participate in. But I say to you that the mark of a Jesus follower will be the love they show to other people, especially others that in a community or a state or a nation or a church that considers them less than. Jesus might say, you've heard it said that God ordered the genocide of entire cultures of people. But I say to you, my father would never do that. 
rock your boat a little here. You've heard it said that women shouldn't be in leadership position over a man in the church. But I say to you that when God created Adam and Eve, He told both of them to rule together as co-rulers. Thank you. All the women say, You heard it said that God has a list that only heterosexual, cisgendered people make this list. But I tell you that that's just your list of people you don't understand. And so it's easier for you to fear them rather than to love them. Jesus might say, you've heard it said that if you want peace, prepare for war. But I say to you, if you prepare for war, you're probably going to get it. Jesus said, you've heard it said that we should walk down the right side of the street even if it means walking with certain people, with, sorry, without certain people. But I say to you that I would rather walk down the wrong side of the street with you than the right side of the street without you. But what do we do when we come to these texts in the Bible, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, that contradict or can't quite put it together what seems to be the compassionate image of God that Jesus emphasizes in both word and deed? Do we throw them out? Do we call people liars? Or do we understand the beauty and inspiration of a text that doesn't hide the fact that we all struggle with creating God in our image? We know that wisdom is found by bringing into the discussion our clearest picture of Jesus and our closest experience of the Spirit. And when we have to make an interpretive judgment call about whether this story or this teaching leans toward the human element of the text, or that story leans more towards the divine element, we do so with a sense of humility and a continued openness to other interpretations. It's the best, it's best we can do, I think. That's number three. And here's the fourth thing that I think Jesus came to bring into the world, a change, to increase the level of joy in the world. Now think about this. How many of you are committed to the idea of joy? Come on. It's what everybody wants, isn't it? Don't you want, I mean, we call it happiness, we call it whatever, but don't you want to maximize the amount of joy in your life? I think that's what we're after. I think that's what 99% of the human beings on the planet are after. They want to increase the level of joy in their own lives, and when they see the joy increasing in other people's lives, it brings more joy into their life. The old cliche works. A burden shared is half the burden. A joy shared is twice the joy. It just works that way. We just spent a whole week, this last week, if those of you who are doing the Lent journey, on the topic of joy. Jesus was the most joy-filled human being that ever existed. C.S. Lewis says, joy is the serious business of heaven. John 15, 11, Jesus, Jesus says this. These things I have spoken to you, he's talking to his closest friends, that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. John 17, 13, he's praying to his father. He says, Father, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they, us, his friends, his followers, human beings on the planet, may have the full measure of my joy within them. What would that be like? to have the full measure of Jesus' joy in us on a daily basis. Who are some of the most joyful people you know? That's easy for me. Kids. Kids. Children. Three times 
In the Gospels, Jesus references children to teach his followers, I think, about joy. Matthew 18, Mark 10, Matthew 19. The disciples, in the context, they're all engaged in these heady, theoretical, theological discussions about divorce and celibacy and other heady topics where someone has to be right, that school of thought is right, and that school of thought is wrong, and these people are in, and those people are out. And while these debates are raging, Jesus wanders off, finds a kid, finds a child, brings them right into the midst of them. And he seems to be saying, look, all those heady debates where there has to be a winner and a loser, they're mostly about your ego. You're not seeking truth. You just want to be in charge. And it's a waste of time, Jesus says. I mean, look at these kids. Every time you minute you spend in these ongoing hot debates that they're not only going to drain your joy and the joy of the person you're arguing with, but they're going to drain the joy quotient right out of the world. Jesus seems to be saying, these kids don't have the answers, so stop pretending that you're nothing but a big grown-up kid. You might never have the answer to that. It's okay not to have all the answers. It's okay not to have God all dialed in and figured out. I mean, if there's anybody who should have God dial in, it's me. I have a Master of Divinity degree. Wouldn't that make me God if I was a Master of Divinity? I mean, they give you this, and you come out of seminary, and you think, oh, I've got, you know, you have all these tests and all these papers, all this stuff. You go, oh, I've got God all dialed in. And then, and then you realize 10 years later, or 15 or 20 years later, it's, it's God I'm talking about. God, the one who created the universe, billions and billions of, of galaxies? You've got that God dialed in, figured out, put in a little box. You know, A, B, and C answer, and B is the only crap. Jesus says, look at these children. Look at these kids. Don't lose this. Don't lose this spirit of a child, this wonder about the simplest of things, this awe about something that we would just walk by, but they go, look, look. We was in the playground last night in Fort Collins with my triplet granddaughters. On the we played on this merry-go-round. It had some ice on it. And the faster I spin it, they'd flip off. And <laughs> they only cried once when I flipped them off. <laughs> do it again, do it again, do it again. We just kept, here's the change. All right, play more. Amen? Amen. Laugh more. Amen. Amen? Don't take ourselves so seriously. It's hard. So will you indulge me a little converse talk about my grandkids? I know I already mentioned them, but I know I do this a lot, but maybe this is why. Maybe I'm trying to take Jesus' teaching seriously and go, you know what, Dennis, it's okay to do all that stuff and have all those debates and read all those books and you know, try to help you with all that stuff, but, but don't forget this. Don't forget this. Don't forget to try to understand and live life through the eyes and the heart of a child. Uh, I have a grandson who's in first grade in Salida, Colorado. And this is his first year of playing basketball on his first and second grade team. And so we got to go to one of his basketball games earlier in the season. They lost 36 to 4. <laughs> and Kyle, my grandson, first grader, was inconsolable. I mean, I carried him to the car. Papa, Papa, they destroyed us was just on and on. So my son sent us a video 
a few weeks ago of Kyle uh, playing in a basketball game where he makes his first basket in a game. Watch this. That's him. I mean, look at that face. Look at that face. Now, is that a picture of joy? His first basket ever. First basket ever. Did you hear the voice in the background? Yay! Yay, Kyle! You probably didn't hear that. That was his dad. That was his dad. Now, here's another video. Sledding. Same kid, same dad. He says, I'm going to spin. (laughs) I think this is what God has in mind for us every single day. Do you hear the laughter in the background? That's his dad. Laughing, laughing, laughing because his child is experiencing joy after joy after joy in some of those common, simplest things ever. And I understand that a lot of life is not a basketball game. and It's not a sledding hill. And it can get pretty rough and difficult and challenging. But I think if we're going to have more joy, more awe, more wonder, perhaps there's still time for all of us to stop taking ourselves so seriously, stop having to be right, stop having to win, stop having to produce, stop having to accomplish more to make a name for ourselves or make a name for our church or leave a legacy. Stop having to decide who's in, who's out. Perhaps then, and only then, will we experience the joy of sinking that first basket over and over again and doing that spin on the sled hill over and over again. And if it's not us, it's someone we know who's experiencing joy in their lives. And when we do, maybe if we listen close, we'll hear the laughter. We'll experience Christ through the laughter of a heavenly Father and a Jesus, a Christ who says to us, I want my joy to be in you. And I want your joy to be full. To quote T.S. Eliot, we never cease from our exploring But in all of our exploring, we return to where we began and know that place for the very first time. So what's Jesus inviting us into this week today? I got four things. One, learn to interpret the Bible through the lens of Jesus. It's an art, it's a skill, it's a practice. You'll find great freedom. It's going to change some of what you think. Number two, Read a book that's been very helpful to me called A More Christ-Like God, A More Beautiful Gospel. I read a section from the foreword of that book. 
just really helpful thinking around some of these things that ideas about God that maybe might not fit quite so much with uh, the Jesus, the historical Jesus. And number three, initiate a conversation with someone whose appears excluded. Could be in a lunchroom, it could be at a restaurant, it could be walking down the street, it could be in a store. Um, but just be friendly, be kind. And number four, play or laugh with a kid this week. And if you don't have kids, look up some fun kid videos. You'll laugh. You'll laugh. Amen.